Mathematica's Policy and Perspective podcast. I'm Delia Welsh, a researcher in the International Division. Last year, Mathematica convened a discussion on monitoring, evaluation, and learning for international development programs. And the discussion generated quite a bit of online interest both during and after the event. We weren't able to get to all of the questions and comments. So we wanted to follow up with the panel to reflect on our discussion and address some of the topics we were unable to cover. I'm joined today by most of the panelists from that conversation, um, including Jackie williams Kay from Wellspring Advisors, Joshua Kaufman from USAID's Global Development Lab, and Matt Sloan and Clemente Costantino from Mathematica. Matt, to kick us off, could you talk about how you would define monitoring, evaluation, and learning, and how this compares to more traditional monitoring and evaluation approaches? Thanks, Delia. Um... So I, I think that one of the, the basic challenges we have in, in discussing this topic is that there's really not an agreed upon kind of definition of, of what monitoring, evaluation, and learning or, or MEL is. Um, and I, I think we're in a period of, of exploration where lots of organizations um, are, are committing to it and kind of exploring what, uh, what, what it could be. Um, I think that what differentiates MEL from traditional M&E is, is, is a commitment to learning, um, which uh, you might gather just by adding the L to the, the, the traditional M&E, where uh, traditional M&E might focus on uh, counting or, or measuring progress towards a particular goal, such as you know, potentially looking at the number of cl- textbooks that are uh, sent to classrooms in a country, um, typical evaluation approaches then might try to look at the impact of, of that intervention or um, the implementation of the intervention. Um, and I think that adding the, the L or learning aspect to this focuses on a commitment to, to learning, but also a plan for using that learning so that uh, at the end of the day, there is kind of a built-in process for being very intentional about what uh, what we want to learn, and then again, how we're going to use it either to improve that program or to improve other programs. I think MEL in general has a strong emphasis on partnership, um, where uh, the typical independent evaluator becomes much more embedded with um, the donor, with grantees, with beneficiaries to uh, establish a more kind of collaborative approach to both evaluation and uh, understanding how the learning will be injected back into the process. And then finally, I think that um, Mel, in in my opinion, has always seems to really focus much more strongly uh, on the theory of change, where most Mel frameworks start with. Um, a very careful approach to elaborating a theory of change and using that theory of change to identify indicators as well as to kind of think about where the learning can be injected in uh, in a continuous way. Great. Given that um, this is an evolving definition, I'm curious if others wanted to sort of add their perspective on the definition. Uh, sure. This is uh, Clemencia. I, I love that Matt and I are in the same organization and we have slightly different sort of ways of thinking about MEL. Um, I agree with, with most of what Matt said, but I, I think that I, that I would argue that 
that learning was also the focus of traditional M&E approaches. Uh, I mean, that's the whole point of monitoring. It's the point of evaluating. And, and people that pursue those more traditional approaches would probably argue that that's why they're doing it. Um, to me, what, what really distinguishes MEL from traditional M&E is really the integration of approaches and something that Matt mentioned, this sort of collaborative strategic approach to activities where it's not one external evaluator that comes in and does the monitoring or does the evaluation, but where an entire partnership develops uh, ML framework and makes strategic decisions about what work to prioritize and who should be doing it. Great. So this is Josh at uh, USAID. I would also uh, add that um, the emphasis, there's an implicit emphasis change when you talk about MEL, or in the case of USAID, we throw R in there for research, um, which is I th less about the method sometimes and more about the utilization of it. So, for example, the belief that we are in a position now, in part because of new methodologies, but in part because of, for example, USAID, some shifts in our agency policies and approaches to use more data and evidence um, to drive decision-making, both within the project cycle itself, so at a very sort of micro-operational level, and then hopefully more broadly at a, at a larger level, even ultimately maybe an organizational level. And so I think really it's sometimes less about the method and more acknowledging that, that it's utilizing information in a way that is a more deliberate attempt at impacting decision-making through evidence and data. That's an excellent point. Um, and I, I wanted to, um, to, to turn a little bit to ask Clemencia about this idea of using um, MEL approaches to inform program design. This was a, a comment that came up during the event. Um, and it was coupled with, a, with another question about um, using MEL, you know, how MEL differentiates from, from formative research. Could you give an example of how MEL interacts with the program design process um, or with formative research from perhaps your work? Uh, sure, and I think this is related to the point that Josh just brought up. Um, to me, uh, it's interesting that someone asked about how MEL is different from formative research because the whole point of formative research or formative assessment is to improve to guide decisions that can help us improve a program or an approach or a strategy. It's not really to pass judgment. And that's exactly what MEL is all about. MEL to me is the epitome of formative research insofar as what we're trying to do is gather information to improve, um, to make better decisions, um, to make adjustments to a program or to an approach that we're following or even to revise an entire strategy so that we can increase the probability of achieving uh, whatever the goals of that strategy are. And it's in that feedback loop, in that uh, strong focus, as Josh said, in using the information to make decisions that it can influence program design. Because we can go back and say, did we get it right? Is this working as we expected? Or did we miss something? Was some component needed and we did not think of that at the design phase, and now we realize that we need to put it in place for this to succeed. 
Um, and I think we, we do have, we have several examples at Mathematica of um, where we have done this sort of work. Um, and I'm trying to think about sort of what's, what's the best example. It's kind of hard to say. Every single project is different. Um, but I'm thinking, for example, of the MasterCard Foundation Scholars Program where we developed a very broad plan at the very beginning, which included um, all kinds of activities uh, and uh, had research questions that we knew we were not going to tackle, but we wanted to have a very broad plan with the universe of what could be relevant to then make decisions, be very strategic about what we would be doing and, uh, and when. And we began focusing very specifically on uh, baseline data collection to support an eventual impact evaluation. And as the program began to grow as expected, um, and it was very ambitious in its growth plans and its, its graduation plans for students that participated, this is for students in secondary school and in, in higher education, we shifted and we moved towards measuring outcomes among program participants and getting qualitative feedback so that we could, the program could consider programmatic revisions. Uh, and now as we are taking stock of that information and we actually have results both from our outcomes analysis, from the impact analysis and from the qualitative um, study that we did, um, we, and the program has evolved. We've realized the program has changed over time so we're actually going back to collect baseline data again, but this time it's for a new cohort of students because the program has changed and we need a cohort that is more representative of what the program looks like today uh, compared to five years ago. And as we look at the impact results, um, the foundation is actually considering the changes to their strategy. And this comes at a perfect time because the foundation just took a year to um, to think about its strategy and to come up with their new strategy um, for the next decade or so. And as they do that, our findings are actually reinforcing the direction that they were considering um, going into, and they're making some pretty significant programmatic changes, such as discontinuing, for example, the the scholarships for secondary education, which at the moment are the bulk of the program and emphasizing more um, the higher education work. So that's, that's actually a, a huge shift. They're also changing the types of partnerships that they're engaged in. And so I think this, this gives a sort of a, a good illustration of the ways in which uh, where we put our emphasis in terms of male activities varies over the course of implementation of a program depending on how the program is progressing and then provides a feedback loop to think about um, whether the program needs to be redesigned. It's Jackie, and I just wanted to underline one of those points. I think one of the challenges we've had is that typically we think about um, evaluation as a one-off project, and that has led to implementing the wrong evaluation given the time or context or stage of development of the program. And so a shift to thinking about evaluation not as a one-off but as 
an agenda that takes place over a period of years and takes into account the stage of development of the program is a really important shift for the field. And I think we've started to make that shift, but we're not all the way there yet. That's a really excellent point. I, I, I did want to ask Clemencia one additional question sort of to, to build on her answer. Um, I think more traditionally, uh, it might have been seen that if you have to recollect baseline data to be more representative of the program that's going to be implemented, that in the past that might have been considered, you know, somewhat of a misstep or a failure of the monitoring and evaluation approach. But in the, the case of MasterCard, it sounds like this is a feature of this partnership and, you know, a good example of how you know, of how a MEL approach adapts to the specific information and learning needs of a program as it, as it changed. Is that a, would you say that's a correct characterization? I think, uh, yes. I, I mean, I think I wouldn't describe it as a failure uh, ever actually to collect baseline data uh, because programs change over time, where, uh, and that's very common, sometimes intentionally so and sometimes unintentionally. And collecting baseline data for new cohorts to compare to prior cohorts and to understand how, how um, the program has changed would be in itself a worthwhile effort. In this particular case, uh, which uh, I think reinforces another point of, um, of MEL, to build on what Jackie was saying, which I also thought was an excellent point, is that MEL requires very active management. You have to be thinking uh, and assessing and considering your next steps based on uh, the information that you're gathering. It's not a one-time thing, let's do a monitoring effort or let's do an evaluation of X or let's do a research project to study this question. So. Uh Shifting to Josh, I wanted to, to ask um, about something that you, you brought up in a previous response about um, new USAID policies. Uh, USAID's current evaluation policy does allow for more flexible monitoring and evaluation approaches than have been used in the past. And as the Global Development Lab uh, supports this policy, what are some of the, the lessons um, that, that you've learned um, in helping missions and bureaus adopt more flexible learning approaches? So in the Global Development Lab, we're about two years into a deliberate process that we're doing uh, along with approximately two dozen missions and Washington-based bureaus to test out new approaches to monitoring, evaluation, research, and learning, um, in part to support the built-in flexibility that the agency now has around this effort, um, not just around monitoring, evaluation, and learning itself, but also as it relates to what we call the entire project cycle, which really starts with strategic planning, moves into project design, project implementation, and uh, at the end, evaluation, uh, research, and learning. And so we've learned, I think, some uh, valuable lessons so far, and I'll just share a couple of them here. The first is we were testing out new approaches or innovative approaches to both support uh, evaluation, monitoring evaluation done for what I'll call traditional purposes, and there I mean either um, for uh, reporting purposes, for accountability purposes, for really trying to sort of you know understand the the impact of activities for for again for reporting or accountability. So we tried out some efforts that sort of innovating in that space, but also testing out new approaches and innovations to use. Um, 
research and uh, learning and evaluation to generate data and evidence to be utilized in less traditional ways. And particularly with an emphasis on using that information to inform project implementation while it was going on, but also for more longer-term deliberate sort of efforts at learning about the impact of our work um, after the fact, so not just traditional post facto, but looking out at sustainability. And lastly, acknowledging the types of environments that USAID and other donors and foundations are working in are um, certainly have always been, but, but are increasingly complex and really questioning whether traditional tools um, were the best tools to use in these very complicated uh, environments. Um, so a few lessons there. So first I would say the, the added value we might have at developing new approaches to do monitoring and evaluation for traditional purposes um, was not significant enough for us to really continue in that in those efforts. So here it's a more a matter of the tools that were available, pro, uh, performance evaluation I'm talking about, impact evaluation, um, were largely the correct tools to do traditional M&E. So it's really about improving the quality or in the case of experimental or quasi-experimental design, I think continuing to push the agency just to do more of that period as, as appropriate. And so we've walked back some of our more deliberate efforts to develop new tools to to do traditional M&E with. Um, so we've really emphasized then these new areas um, and where the traditional processes were not effective or appropriate. Um, so for example, we've um, been really trying to embrace uh, and push out in the agency the notion of developmental evaluation, which obviously is not something that was developed at USAID or even in the international development context. It's actually you know, really developed more from a domestic US perspective. Um, and there was interest, but not uh, the, um, in practice, people in the agency using developmental evaluation. So now we've got several developmental evaluations that are ongoing. And I would say, um, in my mind, so far it's exceeded my expectations in terms of being able to actually generate information that's being used by project managers to improve the outcomes of the activities. Um, likewise, we're experimenting with using rapid cycle or rapid feedback approaches like mini RCTs um, when you have a project that has several implementation arms. And you could test those arms against both a counterfactual and also against each other. Um, and so the purpose of that, again, is to inform while the project is being implemented and form the and allow for adaptation of the actual implementation. And we found that traditional tools were just not um, cut out for that. Uh, likewise, uh, when we're sort of acknowledged the huge challenges of designing and implementing and evaluating and measuring um, activities that, that are inherently super complex, either because we're working with multiple actors and the systems are complex, or the environment is complex, especially in areas where what we call non-permissive environments, where for security or other concerns, um, the ability to actually visit or project sites or have a, a personal oversight is limited or non-existent, that we've been able to try to leverage new tools and approaches, whether it's um, obviously the, the most common approach would be utilizing the, the, the rapid um, increase in access to mobile phones and internet and, and 
related tools such as tablets, um, but also using things like satellite imagery, uh, remote sensing, drones. And so we're really sort of in some early stages of experimenting there. So I think those are the areas that are most promising um, rather than, you know, I think there's always room for incremental improvement, but in terms of really coming up with new methods writ large, um, you know, we found that it's most promising to do that in areas where that are new to USAID in terms of really thinking about monitoring evaluation and learning for new purposes. So I would be curious to hear, you know, Josh, I think it's really exciting to hear that you're um, experimenting with these, you know, different approaches. I guess I'm wondering in your mind, what does success look like? So for us, when we really starting with the onset of the design of this portfolio of innovations that overall we call Merlin, which is monitoring, evaluation, research, and learning innovations, um, we tried to essentially take the conceptual approach that we and other donors and foundations use to fund innovations um, in for development impact. So it could be an innovation of a household solar system or a new uh, medical device, um, and the idea was very deliberately, or is very deliberately, um, particularly in the early stages, to treat these as tests and, um, and, and experiments, and then to determine whether or not these innovations are successful and particularly significantly more successful than current approaches. So we decided to take that, um, that thought process or that sort of design process and apply it to doing monitoring, evaluation, research, and learning differently. So in my mind, in the immediate term, success is um, having enough pilots and enough uh, high-quality learning to assess whether the individual innovations that we're doing are um, technically sound, significantly better, and applicable in a USAID or a donor setting. And, and so in my mind, the answer could be for all of those might be no, and Merlin itself might be successful because you know we have achieved those those objectives and hopefully demonstrated that it's worthwhile to experiment in this area. Obviously, I'd prefer that some of those approaches would be successful, um, and I hope I think early indications are that some will be. Um, and so, therefore, uh, we're working very closely with the uh, Policy Planning and Learning Bureau, and success really for us would be the, the approaches that are successful to be built in explicitly into um, agency-wide mechanisms, agency-wide training, and agency-wide policy so they would be broadly adopted throughout USAID. So, um, Jackie, we've talked a lot about um, a new uh, methodologies to improving learning, um, as well as helping um, programs adopt a more you know, intensive learning approach. Could you talk a little bit about the dynamics of how um, grantees or program implementers adopt uh, this learning approach? What are some of the obstacles that they face in uh, determining uh, what to measure? I'm going to talk about three obstacles I see, although I think within each of the three, um, as I talk about them, you'll see there's an overarching theme here of an obstacle um, named the funder. So I'm going to talk both about the grantee experience, but also the funder experience and how they could perhaps each shift in some ways to improve the process and the learning. And so the three are how we approach time frame how we approach determining the focus 
of the evaluation and learning and the lack of understanding about the perspective of the other. So the grantee's lack of understanding about the funder's perspective and the funder's lack of understanding about the grantee perspective. In terms of time frame, there's often a disconnect between the stated outcomes of a program and the actual evaluation plan. And often this is about time frame. Funders contribute to this by asking for four-year outcomes with one-year grants. And nonprofits contribute to this by stating outcomes that are really aspirational goals rather than realistic outcomes of what can be accomplished within the time frame for the program or the project. And that's understandable because grantees often worry that the realistic outcomes won't sound important enough to the funder. So two suggestions, one for the funder and one for the grantees. For funders, I think we need to find better ways and be more intentional about giving grantees, quote unquote, permission to have realistic right-sized outcomes. And for grantees, I encourage them to adopt a strategy that one of our grantees used, which I thought was just a perfect solution. They referred to their outcomes in a grant proposal as bridge outcomes, and then also explained what those outcomes would lead to. So that gave them the ability to acknowledge that the outcomes of this shorter term work were not the ultimate long term outcomes they wanted to achieve, but it made it very easy for us to see how they contributed and it made it very easy for all of us to think about, okay, what should the evaluation and learning focus on for this phase of the work? And then the second point about time frame specifically is ironic because evaluators are always saying don't evaluate retrospectively, you should embed evaluation in from the beginning. And yet, when we do evaluation, it's often only at the end of the evaluation that we sit down and think about, so how did it play out? How did it go? There are two evaluation tools that I think we should consider adopting at the beginning of an evaluation process. One is what we call the pre-mortem, which means that at the beginning, rather than waiting to the end, you ask the question, what could cause this to be unsuccessful? So what could be the reasons that this evaluation and learning effort will not work the way we want it to and provide what we want it to? And by going through that at the beginning, you can identify some of the possible barriers in advance and create strategies to overcome them. And in addition, scenario planning for grantees and funders as well could be useful. You know, what might we do if this happens? Or what might we do if this happens? Given that often, as has been noted here, we're doing evaluation maybe at the developmental stage, and we don't actually know exactly how it's going to play out. In terms of our approach to determining the focus of the work, I think that funders can be really helpful here upfront by the types of questions they ask and the type of information they provide to grantees. The first is, Funders often are interested in evaluation because we have a line of sight across a group of grantees. So for example, 
Wellspring might fund multiple grantees to improve their capacity to do strategic communications. And therefore, we see the learning opportunity not as what has this one individual grantee learned, but if we synthesize all of the learning across grantees, what kind of contribution can we make to the field about this question? However, individual grantees often don't know that a funder is thinking that way. And so I think if we were more open about how their own evaluation might contribute to broader field learning, I think grantees would have a um, more optimistic approach to evaluation and learning. And then I also think funders could change the question. Instead of asking, what is your evaluation plan? If we asked a question like, what unanswered questions affect your ability to make progress in your work? Now we've really shifted it from evaluation accountability thinking to learning thinking. And so again, thinking upfront about the types of questions that funders could ask to help grantees think of this in terms of learning. Finally, in the area of the lack of understanding of the perspective of others, um, this comes straight from the idea that we all understand, which is there is no common understanding of evaluation or learning. People have different perspectives on what evaluation means. They have different perspectives about what learning means. It shifts depending on the context, and obviously funders and grantees might have different perspectives. And yet, we rarely, at least in my experience, have a conversation about this upfront. And so thinking also about that and asking, for example, a grantee asking a funder, can you provide an example of an evaluation report that was particularly useful for you? Um, these three areas, time frame, focus, and understanding the perspective, they're all related because if we ask those questions up front to help us understand the perspective of the other, then that's going to hopefully lead to a more appropriate focus for the evaluation learning in a time frame that's also the appropriate one. Great. And I, I think this is a, a, a good way to, to segue into our, our last question because these are very sort of tangible ways that um, funders can act can interact more effectively with grantees and grantees can interact more effectively with funders. Um, so if uh, if people and institutions are, are interested in, in learning more about um, what it means to adopt a monitoring and evaluation and learning approach, um, what are some resources that, that people can offer or case studies uh, that, that others can, can look to as they, as they explore their interest in adopting this approach? So I would say um, from our experience, there, we're starting to, um, at USA, develop some resources that I think would, uh, believe would be broadly applicable beyond just the agency, and that was our intent. So first of all, our um, policy planning and, uh, and learning bureaus, uh, learning evaluation and research office, or LER, has a, um, a couple of initiatives they're doing around uh, collaborative learning, but also uh, one they've mostly wrapped up on complexity-aware monitoring, where they've put together, I think, some really good um, sort of best practice guides um, that are available on the USAID website. 
Um, for us in the lab, we're trying to try to capture some of our early learning and our experiments in this area. So for example, we just published along with the consortia partners for our development evaluation pilot activity, a, a set of practitioner tools that I think is um, has a lot of value added because I think it's specific to international development um, from the perspective of, of Imp uh, strengthening the ability of developmental evaluators to succeed, but also better uh, increasing the understanding of what organizations are getting into when they host a developmental evaluator, so they'll be prepared to utilize the the, the learning that's embedded in in a developmental evaluation. So we um, that is something that was just recently uh, published and is available. I have two resources. Um, one is from the Ontario Nonprofit Network. It's called Learning Together, Five Important Discussion Questions to Make Evaluation Useful. And I believe it's an enormously helpful resource for both funders and grantees in figuring out how to navigate the relationship as you try and do evaluation and learning together. And then the second resource, actually doesn't exist yet, but I want you to be aware of it. Wellspring is supporting work to develop a set of tools to assess the extent to which an organization is a learning organization. This is something that we think we might integrate into our getting to know you with potential grantees, because my own view is that it could be less important to know the specific evaluation plan and more important to have confidence that this is a learning organization and therefore we're more confident that they will indeed um, implement useful evaluation and learning projects. So I'd like to add a resource that I'd meant to reference earlier, which is um, there's an informal grouping that we call the International Development Innovation Alliance, um, which is made up primarily of donors, both bilateral donors such as ourselves or um, Global Affairs Canada, multilateral donors uh, um, in the United Nations groupings and also the bank um, and foundations, uh, Gates and Rockefeller. And so one of the projects we took uh, over the last year that and that resulted this summer um, in a, was looking at how we measure innovation. Um, and so there's a report that was published in June called Insights on Measuring the Impact of Innovation that has, um, a, 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 in essence, it's part of the um, document itself is capturing best practices, but also capturing resources and tools to measure innovation. Um, and it cuts across a lot of the approaches we've talked about today in, in this podcast. Um, I think the best way to find it would actually perhaps go to the uh, webpage of Results for Development, who serves as the secretariat for this grouping. Um, and I find that that's a very high-quality publication that I would recommend to people. Thanks. Uh, Matt, Clemencia, Josh, and Jackie for this excellent conversation and for joining us again to offer your insights and advice about learning. Um, for more information on Mathematica's work, please visit our webpage at mathematica-npr.com. And thank you very much for listening to this Policy and Perspective podcast.